Hi, Dave Emery here. This is For the Record Program number 1286. Interview number 23 with Jim Jamiel about JFK Revisited. This is being recorded on January 27th of the year 2023. And once again, it is my great pleasure and privilege to bring back to our airwaves, Jindia Jamiel, the author of, among other titles, Destiny Betrayed, and also selected by Oliver Spoon to write the screenplay for JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass, and also the author and editor of the book of the same name. Uh, what we're going to be talking about in this program is something that is an extension of some of the dialogue or some of the material, I should say, covered in JFK Revisited, and that is JFK's civil rights program, which has been badly eclipsed. And uh, Jim has a four-part essay on kennedysandking.com, his website, which is, frankly, a masterpiece. And I will sum up again the simple feature of that essay and something that is factual and yet unknown to most people. The Kennedy administration did more to advance civil rights in three years than the prior 18 administrations did in nearly a century. This is simply a matter of record. It is, and you have brought that record to us, Jim. So let's... uh, pick up more or less where we left off at the conclusion of our last interview, and that is with the beginning of JFK's administration and the advice that he got from Harris Wolford. That's W-O-F-F-O-R-D. Um, Harris Wolford had been the attorney for the Civil Rights Commission that was set up in 1957, um, negotiations between Eisenhower, Nixon, and Johnson, all right? The Civil Rights Commission was essentially a fig leaf meant to cover uh, Eisenhower's complete failure uh, to control over Faubus at the Little Rock Crisis, all right, that, the high school there in Arkansas. And so he wanted to kind of cover his tail uh, by putting together this group. Walford who was the attorney in his book of Kennedy's and King, uh, he wrote about his experience there and the fact that no matter how many recommendations that civil rights board put together, uh, Eisenhower really didn't take them very seriously. And so Kennedy knew about what Wofford was doing. And he enlisted him to be his civil rights advisor during the campaign of 1960. All right. And Wofford was attracted to Kennedy, not just because of the civil rights thing, but because Kennedy's differing views on foreign policy than Eisenhower's. So he went to work for him. And then when Kennedy won the election, between the election of 1960, the inauguration in January of 1961, Kennedy asked Wofford to go ahead and write an outline as to how he thought the uh, 
the problem with civil rights could finally be faced up to and do something about it. And so Wofford did that, all right? And he told Kennedy that because you're not going to be able to get a civil rights bill through, you should work on three things, executive orders, things that you can do without Senate and House approval, number one, all right? Number two, you should work through the attorney general's position because they can take cases to court, all right, and on civil rights disputes. And number three, um, you should do as much as you can, all right, in enforcing laws that are already on the books in that in that regard, all right? And Kennedy took this to heart, all right? And he said, okay, all right, let's go ahead and get started. And so the first things that Kennedy did was to go ahead and tell his brother, Robert Kennedy, to start filing court cases in the South based on racial discrimination and voting, all right? And that's one of the very first things that they did was Bobby Kennedy began filing these lawsuits in local courts, all right, in the South, you know. And, for example, John Doerr, a very famous lawyer, uh, was one of Bobby Kennedy's most trusted aides in this. John Sigenthaler, who was a newspaper man, also worked in the Department of Justice. And they went ahead and they started collecting information to file lawsuits. Another thing that Kennedy did, and very few people know this, on the day that Kennedy was inaugurated, he was sitting there, of course, watching the parade go by. That evening, he calls up Secretary of the Treasury, Douglas Dillon, and he says, why were there no black faces in that Coast Guard parade today? And Dillon, of course, you know, how the hell should I know? Okay, and so he how the heck should I know? And he goes, well, find out. And so Dylan goes ahead, does the research, and he finds out that there is not one white student at the Coast Guard Academy. So he tells this to Kennedy, and Kennedy's, Kennedy immediately thinks, well, if it's at the Coast Guard Academy, maybe it's systemic the entire academy. So at the first session of his cabinet, he told everybody, I want you to bring down the numbers on how many people of color you have in your entire department. Okay. From the top down. So state department now, Pentagon, Okay, the Treasury Department, the Attorney General's Office, etc. 
All these departments bring down numbers to the first cabinet meeting. And Kennedy is shocked in two senses as to, number one, how few there are, number one. And number two, how all the people of color are down at the lower rungs. In other words, the custodial and the clerical groups. Okay, so Kennedy becomes the first president in history to sign an executive order on affirmative action. All right, 1961. This first affirmative action order is for strictly the government. Okay, in other words, if you're employed by the government itself, the federal government, you have to practice affirmative action. In other words, what Kennedy meant by this is that if you could not find any person of color to fulfill a position, maybe it's because you weren't looking hard enough. All right? There were all kinds of of what they call uh, HBCUs in the South, right? Historically black colleges and universities. Howard University would be one. Florida A&M would be another. Jackson State would be another. Why don't you look there to see if there's any... So that's what he wanted to do with that. Then there was a second affirmative action law that he passed. This one extended the first one. It now said that... If you're doing business with the federal government and we're paying you for contracts that you then have to go ahead and practice affirmative action yourself. Now, this was much more far-reaching than the first one because, you know, like, for example, if you're, if you're doing business with the Pentagon, that meant Boeing Corporation. That meant Martin Marietta. Okay, these these huge, huge businesses now had to go ahead and obey affirmative action laws. If you were making clothes or briefcases for the State Department, if you were designing uniforms for the Coast Guard, if you worked in a textile factory in North Carolina now that did that, then they had to hire people of color. And this is for the first time this ever happened in the history. And so for the first time, textile factories in North Carolina were hiring African-American workers. And this reporter went down to North Carolina and, and interviewed a supervisor, and they said, and he said, you haven't hired African-American people in 40 years. He goes, well, we really don't have much of a choice. We supply the Navy with a lot of their uniforms. It's either we hire them or we close up, and I don't want to close up. Okay, so, so this is what the second affirmative action law did. Another thing Kennedy did is he told everybody that he made this clear in his cabinet, okay, 
I don't want anybody joining any kind of a club that will exclude African-American people. All right? And he really meant that, by the way. He did not want anybody in his cabinet to join a segregated club. And so that's what they began to do. They they resigned some of the clubs that they were, athletic clubs or, or, or uh, country clubs that they were part of, they resigned, all right? And they went ahead and joined an integrated. They, I think John Kenneth Galbraith even started his own club, all right? Okay, so that they would make examples of what people should not do. Another thing Kennedy did is he understood the importance of voting. And so he went ahead and started voting drives. Um, his brother and I think another person who I can't remember right now, all right, they went around collecting money from foundations and they parceled it out to um, African-American agencies, all right, like the NAACP, and they went ahead and paid people to go ahead and find unregistered voters in the South and sign them up to vote. And this was an incredible thing, okay, because most commentators on this say that what this did, because they did the equivalent, today it would be $7 million they spent on these voting drives. What this did is it, it did something that if it would have been unattended, would have taken a decade to do. They did it in a year or two. They signed up all these new voters in the South. All right. Okay. And another thing they did is Kennedy was determined that universities in the South would have open enrollment. He understood, like Charles Thomas Houston did, that as long as these universities, both private and public, were segregated, that it would be less opportunity for African-American people to go into the higher professions, you know, the professional schools that were at those great universities, like the University of Georgia, all right, that they would not get to be lawyers. They would not get to be dentists. They would not get to be doctors, okay? As long as those doors were closed, they had less of a chance of going into those higher professions, all right? And so Kennedy was determined to open those up. And so he had a two-track strategy on this. The first track was aimed at private universities like Clemson and Duke, all right? And what they did there is that they went ahead and essentially said, we're not going to give you any more grant money for research projects unless you can prove that you are accepting applications from African-American students. And this worked because this was the life's blood of going ahead and 
and and getting more and more money for their research products. It was a really big part of their budgets. So those places like Duke and Clemson, all right, they had to start opening their doors to something that they had never done before, you know, like Tulane, things like that. And then and what he did in the public universities is he went to the fifth court, this court in the South, a court of appeals that, if you can believe it, was actually made up of white judges who did not want to see the South keep on doing what it was doing. And so people like Frank Johnson and Minor Wisdom were on that court. Um, Skelly Wright, I think, was another one. Bobby Kennedy went to that court in the South to challenge the admissions policies at public universities. And when Bobby Kennedy did that, and he announced he was going to do it at the University of Georgia Law Day in 1961, I think he was the first attorney general to actually go to one of these big universities, okay, like the University of Georgia, and announced that he was going to support the Brown versus Board decision, okay, which was directly aimed at education, all right? And so the University of Georgia, instead of going through this whole long, you know, uh, process of battling the federal government, they went ahead and integrated their school, University of Georgia, voluntarily, right? But there, of course, were the deep south schools, the deep south universities, Mississippi and Alabama, that was not going to go ahead and integrate willingly, right? And so the first big battle was at the University of of, uh, Mississippi with Governor Ross Barnett, right? And what eventually happened there was that James Meredith had applied to go there, and of course, they didn't want to let him in. So this went back and forth like a tennis ball in the courts until finally... All right, the Fifth Circuit Court said there's no ifs, ands, no ends, or buts. And if Ross Barnett is going to go ahead and continue to obstruct it, then we're going to give you a restraining order, and you can arrest them if you have to. All right? And so the Kennedys then went ahead and sent Nicholas Kotzenbach in there to escort James Meredith with some federal marshals so he could go to class. What they didn't understand and didn't expect was that Edwin Walker would be waiting for them. General Edwin Walker, who President Kennedy had forced out of the uh, uh, out of the Pentagon for having his uh, having his uh, soldiers read John Birch Society literature, all right, and so he had it in for the Kennedys, and he had organized. there's no way to say this, a paramilitary army. The estimates go as high as 2,000 people that he had there waiting. And and the Kennedys only had something, I think, 400 marshals. And what happened is there was a gigantic screw-up 
by General Creighton Abrams, you know, because the Kennedys wanted a backup plan in case there were too many of these white racists who were going to resist Meredith going into school. And they had a backup plan. But Creighton Abrams had greatly underestimated how fast he could get federal troops from the nearest army base to the University of Mississippi at Jackson. And so there there ended up being this incredible battle, all right, in which I think two people were actually killed, all right, at the University of Mississippi. And this battle went on almost all night until uh, Abrams was finally able to get the federal troops there to put it down. JFK was very, very worried about what was going to happen to Meredith. And so what he did is he had two National Guardsmen escort Meredith to class for like a year. In other words, they were waiting for him outside the door every time he was walking to a new class and going to his dorm. All right. Okay, and and that's how worried he was. But this is a tremendous reversal. What happened in the University of Mississippi was a tremendous reversal. Because the NAACP had tried to do this at the University of Alabama in, I believe, 1956. And this was, I think, was called the the Catherine, I hope I get her name right, the Catherine Aussie case, in which they sued to get her on the campus. But she started being harassed by the uh, the racist students there. They went ahead and they harassed her on campus, you know, while she was going to class, when she was going to the uh, to her her housing unit, until they they literally and I'm not exaggerating, they literally ran her off campus. All right, and this when because Eisenhower would not step in. All right, in order to protect her. And this is, so Kennedy learned from that and he had these two National Guard guys escorting Meredith the whole time he was at the University of Mississippi. All right, so that was one thing that finally collapsed. Then the last college in the South that would still not integrate was, of course, the University of Alabama. So Bobby Kennedy went through the same thing. He got a court order through the Fifth Circuit, all right, and they ordered Alabama to accept Vivian Malone and James Hood. Those were the two African-American students who wanted to go into the university, all right? And after a long legal battle, again, it was another tennis match, bouncing around from court to court to court, because George Wallace, of course, didn't want them you know, in the University of Alabama, the governor. And so finally, Bobby Kennedy finally wins out. He tries to talk to Wallace. He goes, look, you don't want another University of Mississippi thing here, do you? All right. And Wallace played his cards very close to the vest. JFK called him on the phone. All right. And he was very angry about this. Because he saw this as another defiance of federal law. Okay? 
And Wallace tried to blame it on him, and Kennedy said, no, this is all on you. All right? We won in court. Okay? So those two kids are going to go to your college, whether you like it or whether you're not. And I'm going to make sure they do it. Okay? So why don't you just stop all this, you know, controversy, because it doesn't need to be exist. All right? But Wallace, again, would not compromise. And so... Wallace saw this, I believe, as a way for him to break into the national scene by defying President Kennedy, all right? That he would make himself a champion, you know, of the racist uh, John Bircher Society types throughout the country, not just the South. So... He wouldn't negotiate, and he wouldn't tell them what he was going to do. So on the day that Malone and Hood were supposed to go ahead and enter the university, Wallace brought, I believe the number was 890, 890 uh, state troopers and policemen to back him up at this showdown. Kennedy had learned a lot from the University of Mississippi showdown, all right? And so this time he told Abrams, I don't want you at a nearby base. I want you and your troops to be either right off campus or on campus somewhere hiding out, all right? And we have to have more guys than he does. So they brought in 3,500, okay, Um troops all right and i'm pretty sure they were actually on campus they were in the they were like in the outer borders of campus and that you'd get there very quickly if need be there's actually a film about this okay um by the mazel's brothers i think it was okay or it might no no it might be a different filmmaker all right and it's 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 um it's a pretty good movie, and it's about how they were planning this showdown with George Wallace, all right? And the discussions went on, like, for an hour in the White House. How are we going to get those kids into the school? How are we going to minimize any danger, okay, so nobody gets hurt, okay? And so they sent Katzen back down again. And they didn't talk. He wouldn't talk to Katzenbach until that morning, the very morning that they were the kids were supposed to go in. All right. And so at about 10 o'clock that morning, and by the way, this time you literally had scores of media people on the scene. All right. Literally scores of them. And they were just not from the United States. There were some from foreign countries. And so, what happens is that that morning, Katzenbach and Wallace, Wallace understood that he was outnumbered, okay, and he there, there was not going to be any winning confrontation for him, and he would probably humiliate himself if he did, all right? And so he got to make a speech, and Katzenbach made a speech, all right? And finally, Wallace decided to back out of the front door. 
okay, not to block the doorway to those to those two students going in. But it was only after Kennedy had to nationalize the local National Guard. And so you in the films of that, you can actually see it. Okay, you can see it that the commander of the local National Guard has been nationalized by JFK. So his commanding officer is not the governor, it's the president. All right. And he drives up in a Jeep to the front door of the university. And he essentially tells Wallace, under orders of the president of the United States, you will either stand aside or you'll be forcibly removed. Okay. So that these two students can enter the university. And that's what it took to get the last university in the South integrated. All right. And it was, it was the Kennedys who did it. All right. And no other, this is, you know, to, to actually compare what even people like Truman did or Roosevelt did with what the Kennedys did, there's, there's simply, there simply is no comparison at all. And so that night, that night, after Kennedy had faced off with Wallace, all right, Bobby Kennedy took his brother aside and said, you know, I think this is a pretty good time to go ahead and try and make a national speech to get the public behind you to pass your civil rights bill. The Civil Rights Bill had been in Congress since February of 63. All right. And of course, it was being stonewalled by the Southerners in the House of Representatives. All right. And so Bobby Kennedy said, this might be the right time. All right. To make a national speech and to get the public behind you. And so, Before we get to uh, the, the uh, historic speech that JFK made, I wanted to fill in a couple of pieces of historical background. Uh, jumping back to Edwin Walker, who had been fired by JFK for uh, obliging his troops to uh, study the Blue Book of the John Birch Society, uh, it was contained, it was maintained by the Warren Commission that Lee Harvey Oswald had also tried to kill Edwin Walker, and this was often cited as proof that Oswald was an apolitical, quote, assassin, unquote. Interestingly, that information was officially first disclosed to the Warren Commission, I think in early December of 63, and yet uh, it was uh, contended by Edwin Walker himself in a phone call on November 23rd to Gerhard Fry, who was the publisher of the Deutsche National Zeitung, so that Zeitung, who had been subsidized by the CIA and had some, uh, former SS officers on his editorial staff. And of course, the question is, how did Walker know this on November right. 23rd? Uh, jumping to uh, very quickly to George Wallace, uh, after the, both Kennedys had been killed, he ran for president in 1968 and garnered 20% of the popular vote. His vice presidential candidate was none other than former General Curtis LeMay, who had been arguably Kennedy's fiercest opponent 
on the Joint Chiefs of Staff, although May at that time was looking for an aerospace firm in Southern California that had been headed by a former general for the Romanian Iron Guard uh, that fought alongside Hitler. And of course, in 1972, when Wallace was seeking the Democratic nomination, he was shot and critically wounded. And if you wish, you can talk about uh, Arthur Bremer at some point. But when he was knocked out by his serious wounds, uh, that basically ensured the integrity of Richard Nixon's Southern strategy, which we'll get to later. So it's worth uh, bearing in mind with some of these governors and, and the people that squared off with the Kennedys come back into the uh, historical account later. Well, let, let, let me add one of the things that you mentioned, Curtis LeMay. When Fletcher Knebel, a famous uh, journalist from those days, um was doing some research for a book he was writing. He interviewed LeMay, and LeMay went off the record and said, words of the effect, that blasted Kennedy. You know, what a coward to let those Cubans be killed at the Bay of Pigs, you know, and not give him any help. And Knebel said, it was that conversation that led him to the whole plot of Seven Days in May, which I'm sure you know and your, most of your listeners know, that book is about the attempted overthrow of the government of the United States by the Pentagon, right? And the lead character very much resembles LeMay, and the, his antagonist, the president, resembles JFK. So that's talk about a synchronicity, all right? So, you know, that's a very interesting parallel, I think. Now, as I said, JFK decides to take his brother's advice and he gets on the networks and he delivers, well, a lot of people believe, including myself, that what was probably the best civil rights speech in well, probably since Lincoln, all right, since I said everybody else more or less ignored the issue, all right? And that's the amazing thing about that speech is that it was put together willy-nilly in the space of just a couple of hours. And the end of the speech, about the last 10 minutes, uh, were done extemporaneously by JFK. He wasn't even looking at the written notes on the teleprompter at that time. Or he just essentially winged it. You know, that's by this time, June of 1963, that's the way he felt about the issue. That it was something that he simply had to do. You know, knowing full well that it might backfire on him. Right? And he actually said that this was really a moral issue, all right? You know, would we want to be treated the way the governments in the South treat African-American people? Would we want to be that to us? No, we wouldn't. 
All right. Jim, you mentioned that, that, uh, Martin Luther King watching that speech, uh, right. said to one of his aides, uh, that that white man stepped up to the plate and knocked it out of the park. <laughs> right, right. That's what he said. You know, that, that, that white man actually stepped up to the plate and hit a home run. All right. Okay. When it was over. All right. And that's the way a lot of people felt that this was the first time that somebody had taken on the issue so dramatically you know, on a national scale. And that was really the beginning of overcoming the whole Southern Manifesto. All right, the Southern Manifesto was a document that was signed on to by, I believe, about a 100 Southern politicians in both the House and the Senate saying that the somehow the Brown versus Board decision was wrong. It was wrong, and we should resist it with all the power that we have, all right? And this was a very, very difficult thing to overcome, but that speech was really the beginning of breaking down the whole uh, blockage of Kennedy's omnibus civil rights bill by the Southern Manifesto signees. All right. It was really, an, it was really, I mean, I, I hope your listeners have watched it and I hope you put it up there because it's, it's really, and the, the, you know what the most amazing thing about that speech, Dave, and what hardly anybody knows, very, very few people know, Kennedy made that speech and his great peace speech at American University in the space of 48 hours. Now, is that a mind boggler or what? Well, it is. And I think in terms of assessing the overall uh, historical progression, I'm thinking about how the forces of reaction, the forces who killed both Kennedys and Martin Luther King must have felt with those two signature and very dramatic, important addresses having been given within 48 hours, as you noted. It's it's really amazing when you think about it. And I, I, and I, I can see these guys, you know, like LeMay, like Walker, okay, you know, sitting through those speeches and essentially grinding their teeth for two hours, okay, as, as they're watching this thing, you know. And you've got Martin Luther King in the background, You've got Bobby Kennedy doing a lot of the heavy lifting, and they're thinking, we're going to be stuck with these guys for 20 years, you know, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and they, and they just didn't like it. They, they really did not like what they were staring at at that time, you know. So Kennedy's civil rights program, right? And, and we, we, we did some of the highlights, but I, I, I refer you to the, the actual essay is called The Kennedys in Civil Rights, How the MSM Continues to Distort History. And it's in four parts, all right? What we're talking about right now is the third part, all right? How Kennedy finally smashed Jim Crow, all right? And so all these events that occurred, as Harris Walford thought they would, you know, and we didn't mention Birmingham, but Birmingham was very, very, very important. Because that was, oh my God, that was on TV for literally every evening 
for like a week. All right. And, uh, and there was all kinds of people going down there. Hollywood celebrities, you know, like Mike Nichols and Marlon Brando, you know, going down there, uh, to go ahead and try and help, you know, uh, King, you know, and the other, uh, civil rights leaders down there. He wasn't the only one, you know, uh, to, to go ahead and break the back of this very symbolic, you know, uh, I don't have to tell you, you, you had, you know, German shepherds, you had, you know, fire hoses. All right. You know, and, uh, finally, finally that was, that was negotiated out. The power elite in Birmingham agreed to go ahead and, and hire African American people in department stores and in, and in the government offices. All right. And Dick Gregory was there. Dick Gregory, the famous comedian from the 1960s, was there. And JFK knew he was there. All right. And so one night when Dick Gregory flies home uh, from Birmingham, his wife tells him as he walks in, he goes, the president called. And he, he said, the president called. So yeah, he said he wants you to call him. All right. And Gregory goes, it's, uh, but it's midnight. He said it didn't matter what time it was. Okay. So Gregory calls up the White House and Kennedy picks up the phone. He's waiting for him. All right. And he goes, Dick, I couldn't watch a lot of this stuff. I got to know everything that happened down there. All right. And so Gregory goes on for about 10 minutes, tells him the whole spiel. All right. And he said, Kennedy replied, Oh, this is great. We've got those. I can't say it on the radio. We've got them now. All right. And Gregory started weeping. He couldn't believe that an American president could feel that way about the whole civil rights issue. All right. And so that was the beginning of the end for the Jim Crow laws, uh, in the South. As we know, um, after Kennedy passed on, was assassinated. All right. It took a few more months to overcome the Senate filibuster. And contrary to popular, to popular belief and people like Robert Caro, it was not LBJ who broke the back of that filibuster. It was Bobby Kennedy. It was Hubert Humphrey and the California Senator Thomas Kuchel, who was a Republican. Was, wasn't Kuchel himself later assassinated? Oh, I didn't know that. Was I he? think he was. I, I, I have to look it up on, on the internet. I think he himself, oh. if I'm remembering correctly, he himself was assassinated. Or else a family member. I'll, I'll check. All right. And so there are the ones in Clay Rison's book, The Bill of the Century. Um, they're the ones who actually got it through. All right. Bobby Kennedy, the only reason he stayed on was to see his brother's civil rights bill passed. 
and they did the Justice Department, as long as he was in power, did a full court press to get it passed. All right. So it's finally passed in the summer of 1964. And the Civil Rights Bill was so important. It was it was actually monumental. All right. In in this country's history, you know, and and nobody deserves more credit for it than I believe than, than JFK. Now, the last part of the essay deals with what happened after when the when the civil rights after Kennedy gave his speech. Kennedy was already thinking of, you know, it's not good enough to make things equal if the guy going finally to the hamburger shop can't afford a hamburger. All right. And he was very much influenced by a book called The Other America, by a guy named Michael Harrington, which was a huge bestseller at that time. And it was about how people live in the poverty-stricken areas in the United States. And so Kennedy brought in uh, his economic advisors, and they started to think of, okay, what can we do? What can we do to equal, you know, sort out the equality and giving people who now finally have their civil rights, their economic rights? This, this movement in Kennedy's thought coincided with something else that his brother was looking into. Um, his brother was very interested in the whole concept and causes of juvenile delinquency, where it comes from. Back then, that that's what it was called. Today, we call them gangs, okay? But back then, it was called juvenile delinquency. And so he did a lot of studying of this. And he assigned a friend of his, again, a guy like Charles Houston, who nobody knows him today, David Hackett, to try and come up with a solution to it. And JFK allocated literally, you know, a lot of money, I think in the millions, so Hackett could run these uh, experimental trials in different areas of the country. All right. And this was really the beginning of Kennedy's, what was going to be Kennedy's war on poverty, all right? And and Hackett began experiments in different places because he didn't think that the obstructions in an urban ghetto in the north was the same as a western barrio in California, all right. Uh, just, let me let me uh, break in very quickly. Akutsu was not assassinated. I think someone was arrested plotting to kill him. But uh, as we move into the civil rights scene in the North and what the Kennedys did, uh, we, we haven't got nearly enough time to, to cover that adequately. We'll, we'll go into this in our next interview next week. But uh, it, it's worth noting that Robert Kennedy was so far ahead of the curve that he predicted the explosions 
of uh, urban black ghettos into the uh, cataclysmic riots that uh, raged in the middle and second half of the 1960s. He predicted that years in advance and said that if we do not deal with the issues that you are now uh, delineating for us, that we're going to see the, the most, an incredible bloodbath. So he predicted very accurately what would happen if these situations weren't dealt with. This is That's exactly correct. It was after Alabama, after this showdown with Wallace in Alabama, he's talking to Arthur Schlesinger, and Arthur Schlesinger thinks, well, this is pretty awful. We had to go through all this to get those two kids in. And Bobby Kennedy says words to the effect, Arthur, if you think this is bad, where do you see what's going to happen in the North in a couple of years? Okay, so you're exactly right. He predicted that, the, and, and by the way, if you weren't around back then, you don't know how bad it was. Between, I believe, 1965 and 1968, there were over 100 major riots throughout the United States. And it began, as I'm sure you're aware, Dave, it began in L.A. with the Watts riots. Okay, in 1965. All right. And they pyramided through. I mean, everybody thought Watts was horrible. And it was. That was a terrible, god awful riot. But then it went to the Newark riot was even worse than the Watts riot. You had, I think, in Newark, you had 32 people dead. Okay. Then that was topped by the Detroit riot which you had, I think, 41 people dead in the Detroit riot, all right? And so these things just cascaded through every summer. And not only that, but there were riots in other cities that were somewhat smaller, but uh, those large disturbances that you chronicled for us were accompanied by literally a wave of riots in other cities at the same time. Yes, yes. And... Then, the night that King was killed, there were, I think, 120 riots that broke out. The only major city that did not undergo a riot was Indianapolis. And that's because Robert Kennedy flew into Indianapolis that night, and he made what I think is the greatest speech he ever delivered, okay? And he told the, there were a lot of African-American people there, all right? And he told them that Martin Luther King had been killed. And he said, I know the way you feel in your hearts. I had my brother taken away from me, all right? But let's, we don't need any more violence in this country. We don't need any more killing. We don't need any more looting, looting. What we need is peace. We need understanding. We need love. All right. That's what we should be thinking of. And that was the only city that did not go up in flames the night that King was killed. All right. And it's on YouTube. It's, it's a really great speech. And by the, by the way, the night that Bobby Kennedy made that speech, he was wearing his brother's overcoat. 
I did not know that. Uh, worth mentioning briefly, Jim, uh, of course, uh, James Earl Ray was a patsy. He did not kill Martin Luther right, King. Right, that's true. And, and the, the evidence is very strong in that regard. But what, what's worth noting is some of the lawyers that helped to railroad him into prison. Among them was Arthur Haynes Sr., not only a guy who had worked on contract helping to train Bayard Pigs pilots for the CIA, but he also had been the mayor of Birmingham, Alabama, when the civil rights disturbances were taking place. Uh, he had quit the FBI because he thought the civil rights movement was a communist conspiracy. And he also uh, was the fellow who represented for a time uh, Mr. Chambliss, who eventually was convicted of the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing, in which four young girls were killed during those disturbances. There is also a tape made by an undercover Miami police informant, uh, a guy named uh, Joseph Adams Neil Pier, a member of the state, National States Rights Party, talking about killing both Kennedy and Martin Luther King from high-rise windows with telescopically sighted rifles, and he also spoke about the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing, another of Ray's attorneys was J.B. Stoner, the head of the National States Rights Party, and Ray's brother, Jerry, had been a bodyguard for J.B. Stoner. So when the, the point that I'm making is when we look at the entire scene with the Kennedys, uh, with Martin Luther King, with these epic struggles, uh, many of the uh, villains in our dramatis personae also track back to some of these same things. Uh, I remember, too, you, you mentioned that uh, mentioned Dick Gregory. It was Dick Gregory with Robert Groden who appeared on Geraldo Rivera's program and showed the Zapruder film, which then keyed the House of Committee on Assassination. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is a, a very interesting uh, collection of uh, individuals. But but I, I have to I have to uh, make one correction though, Dave. Uh, uh-huh. Haynes might have been a racist, but he was actually going to try and get James O'Ray off. Okay, All right. Uh, so that was an exception, I guess, to his career. All right. And by the way, let let let, let me let me add one more thing. What we're talking about here the night that uh, Martin Luther King was killed. This is when everybody understood now, I mean everybody, at his funeral, because Bobby would, Bobby didn't want anybody to know that you know he financed Martin Luther King's funeral. He paid to have the body bought to his wife in Atlanta, and then he paid for all the phone lines into her house and then he paid for all the hotel rooms because he wanted all these, you know, illustrious people there because he thought he should be honored like that. And everybody knew now at that funeral that Bobby Kennedy was the last hope, you know, that we had. All right. And everybody understood that. So you can imagine the double impact of King and then RFK dead within two months. And that was really, and I've talked about, I don't mind saying this at all, you know, because I was there. I lived through that tumultuous decade. You know, that was the end of the 60s. That was in 1968. That was the end of that era, that sensational decade. 
that started off with so much hope, you know, ended up in disaster. It was uh, absolutely overwhelming. I, I too lived uh, through that. I was a freshman in college at the time. And uh, and, and let, let me say one. Let me say one last thing. Allard Lowenstein, who was a lawyer, was trying to reopen the Robert Kennedy case. He said, what is so odd about what happened is not that so many people thought that they were unrelated. What's really strange is how many intelligent people thought that they couldn't be anything else. And then he said, nothing proves just how great the possibility was of an organized disaster befalling the United States than that. And, and that's true. Who, who thought back then that they were connected? And of course, Albert Goldstein himself was gunned down in 1980 while helping to manage a primary challenge to Jimmy Carter for Ted Kennedy. Jim, we are all out of time. In our next interview, though, I think Robert Kennedy's attempts at uh, improving the civil rights situation in the North with his remarkable prophecy of what was going to happen and what did happen is worth, uh, going into at some length. However, uh, that will have to wait till our next, till our next interview. If you would, uh, recap for people again, uh, the website that has the essay on it and the essays, four part essays and also, uh, JFK Revisited, Black Op Radio, etc. Okay. The essay is called The Kennedys and Civil Rights, How the MSM Continues a Distorted History, and that's at kennedysandking.com. Just punch that in, and you'll be able to find it. Uh, there's the book, JFK Revisited, by me, with an introduction by Oliver Stone. All right, and that has the two screenplays for JFK Revisited and JFK Destiny Betrayed plus excerpts from other interviews. It's a very good book and a very informational book. Um, the DVD, by the way, Dave, it's still number five at Amazon, okay, in the do- documentary section. You can get, I think there's three or four discs. You can get the whole program there, you know, or you can stream it if you want to, all right? Uh, and... Yeah, I look forward to doing that, Dave, because very few people know about what Bobby Kennedy was planning to do. All right. Oh, it was, it was amazing. And, and Kennedysandking.com is your website and the four part essay, uh, from which we are calling this material is available on that. And I think perhaps the assassination of the Kennedys reputations and of their actual record uh, perhaps reach something of a crescendo with the way that uh, Robert Kennedy's uh, attempts at uh, uh, helping out the black black people in the northern ghettos were treated by some of these authors. But that, again, we'll talk about next week. And it is available, however, in that four-part essay, on www.kennedysandking.com. Jim is also a semi-regular on Black Ops Radio. This concludes for the record program number 1286. 
Interview number 23 with Jim Diagenio about JFK revisited. For Jim Diagenio, oh, this is being recorded on January 27th of the year 2023. For Jim Diagenio, this is Dave Emery saying thanks for listening.